Welcome to The Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination, Extra Blooms Edition. These Extra Blooms episodes are revisits of our past guest. My co-producer, Angela Washington, and I very often find ourselves sharing updates with each other. Oh gosh, did you see what that guest was up to? Did you see what they did? Did you see that? Did you see that? And we figured that if we get excited seeing what new things they're accomplishing, that you might too. So these Extra Blooms editions are that, a little extra where we revisit with a past guest to see what else has gone on since last we spoke. Maybe they've got a new passion project, a new idea, a new book, a new accomplishment, and we like to share that. So feel free to go to themorningglorieproject.com to listen to any previously aired episode. And we love it if you write a comment, share it out, give us a review, and let others know. Of course, you can always subscribe to The Morning Glory Project across all of the podcasting platforms. That way you just never miss an episode. So welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm glad you're here today, and I know that you'll love hearing from our Extra Bloom guest. It is my great pleasure to welcome back to the Morning Glory Project for an Extra Blooms episode, Gretchen Charrington. Three years ago, Gretchen wrote Poetic License, which is a a memoir of her family where she uncovers and reveals some truths that were not so comfy about a very famous dad. And she is out now with a new memoir. I guess we'd call it uh, (laughs) 2.0 of of the sort titled The Butcher, The Embezzler, and The Fall Guy, a family memoir of scandal and greed in the meat industry. In the early 1900s, Gretchen's paternal grandfather was recruited by George A. Hormel. And do you say Hormel or Hormel? Hormel is how the family pronounces it. See, we have something to learn here. To help him build what is now the multi-billion dollar food conglomerate Hormel Foods. As a child, Gretchen listened to the riveting stories about these two men from her father. Third in the trio was the company's comptroller, Ransom J. Thompson. A great name, by the way, if you were writing fiction, that's what you'd name him, (laughs) who over a decade embezzled 1.2 million from the Hormel company and nearly brought it to its knees. Rumors suggested Gretchen's grandfather was in cahoots with the embezzler, but was he? Gretchen set out to investigate this question and by way of research trips to Austin, Maine, her grandfather's letters research documents, and her own insights from 40 years of advising CEOs on their companies, Gretchen has written the book that Kirkus calls a dazzling account that deftly combines crime, drama, history, and introspective remembrance, a mesmerizing story filled with drama, suspense, and told with remarkable emotional insights. That's quite a Kirkus review, Gretchen. Gretchen Charrington, thank you so much for being back with the Morning Glory Project. Thank you so much, Betsy. It's great to be back with you. Well, so Gretchen, in both Poetic License, uh, which I interviewed you about three years ago, and so folks can listen to that episode as well, and this one, you're talking about sort of uncovering and reevaluating family lore in a way. So tell our listeners, if they haven't heard that episode, just a teeny bit about Poetic License and then how you got started on this next one. Because no, most of the time people write a memoir and then done, I'm going to write something enough. else. <laughs> That's enough. But no, you went and you took another bite of the apple here. Well, it's kind of interesting because in some ways this, I thought that this story, the new story, would be part of Poetic License. I do introduce the characters in that book 
because this is my father's father and wife that I am talking about in the new book. However, it was really Brooke Warner uh, in developmental editing who said, no, this is your second book. It just wasn't really part of that story in a full-blown way. So the poetic license was really traced the arc of my relationship with my father, who was Richard Eberhardt. He was a U.S. Poet Laureate under Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy. He won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award. He knew all the poets and writers of the 20th century, literally, because he lived more than 100 years. And he was a fantastic storyteller. People came from miles around, partly because of his stories. And it was only in my adulthood that I began to think that maybe he had embellished some of his stories and or that maybe even a few of them weren't quite true because I'd been there when something happened and my experience of it was quite different. In addition, he had sexually molested me when I was 17. And so in my 30s, really, I started to try to dig into that and figure out why it could have happened, how it could have happened, who was my father when I thought he was one thing that the public thought of him, and I knew him as both that and something else. And so really at the same time, I began thinking about the stories that I had heard for decades about my grandfather and my grandmother, neither of whom have I ever met because they died long before I was born. So in the same way that I was sort of questioning some of the stories about poets and writers, I had to wonder a little bit, was George Hormold the bastard that he described him as? And was my grandfather the entirely virtuous person who was sort of held on a pedestal through my upbringing? It sort of strikes me that once you once you determined that your dad was in literature, you'd call an unreliable narrator. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> in, in, in regular life, we call him a fabulist of sorts or, <laughs> or a fibber or a liar, depending on how the degree of which yeah. I suppose. More, Once you discover more, that somebody's accounting of things isn't just slightly different because we all are subjective, but that, sure. that they're fabricating, it, it kind of pulls the thread on the whole thing, doesn't it? It makes you question yes. everything. Yes, I think that's really true. And that's kind of what happened. And at the same time, I was also starting to work with my management consulting company was growing. And I was drawn to, interestingly enough, men at the top of companies who then were almost solely the CEOs back then. They still are, frankly. but Mostly male, are, I mean, as opposed yeah, to few, so few females. There are some female CEOs for sure now. Um, but I was working with these male CEOs, and one of the descriptors that my father had for my grandfather was, and this is in one of his poems that's included at the back of the book, um, was six feet of manhood and not a mark of fear. And I thought that was very um, admirable from my father to have considered his father that way, but also a very weird to think of describing one's father that way, except he was a poet, so he had the right to do so. Anyway, so I wanted to know who my father, my grandfather really was. I wanted to know 
I, I, none of the CEOs I knew had no fear. They all had fears if they were willing to talk about them or if I could create the space for them to talk about them and think about them and how they affected their ability to lead a company. So I came to this writing of this story both as a loving granddaughter and as a management consultant who, I mean, I worked in several hundred companies. So I knew what companies were like. I knew what CEOs were like. I knew how they made decisions, what kind of motivations they had. And I'm not saying that there aren't some CEOs who have no fear, but that would have been very rare in my experience. So again, this was a juxtaposition of kind of descriptors that didn't quite line up for me. It strikes me too that, you know, it's sort of like saying that if, if somebody's without doubt or without fear, the only leaders that I know that are without doubt and without fear are narcissistic despots, right? These these people do not, it's not a necessarily admirable quality. You have to have confidence and there has to be some boldness and, and there's got to yes. be a certain amount of chutzpah, I guess, is yes. what you'd say if yes. you were in the speaking. Yes, there's got to be a healthy ego. Right. Yeah, there's got to be, and, and perhaps right. sometimes a, a pushy ego too. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. the, to be a, a dynamic leader, I think that one has to have that edge of things, but without the element of, hesitation, fear, reflection, self-doubt, those things. Well, sadly, our country knows a little bit about electing yes. people like that. And exactly. Right. And, yeah. And I think, I think he meant it in the context of the story, which was that my grandfather worked for George Hormel for 20 years, recruited to help bring his very small meatpacking company into a national brand that could compete with Swift and Company and Arnold, both of whom were like giants in Chicago. So your grandfather was sort of the, the wind beneath the wings kind of guy? So he was kind of the wind beneath the wings. He was brought in as the sales leader. He was a polar opposite kind of character to George Hormel in many ways. Hormel was a detail-oriented, um, uh, present-day sort of person my grandfather was a future visionary and uh, very relational. People mattered to him most. Um, and so they actually worked together, I suspect, very well for a long time. They complemented each other, I think, very well. And But then Ransom Thompson was hired into the company as the bookkeeper and rapidly kind of elevated by George Hormel he became the comptroller of the company. He was not more than about 25 years old at the time. Now, this was a smaller company than it is now. The Hormel Foods is a 20, or sorry, about a $12 billion company. But still, um, 25 but even still, in that era would have been a, a young was, man for such a huge yes, responsibility. He was a very young man. And um, <laughs> pretty quickly after he became in charge of the books for the company, he began siphoning money off the side. And this took place over the course of nearly a decade from about 1910 till about 1920. Well, it was discovered in the summer of 1921. This was under the eyes of George Hormel, under the eyes of my grandfather, under the eyes of auditors who were called in to look at the books, under the eyes of the federal government, which oversaw and regulated the meat industry 
during World War One to ensure that there were sufficient meats for not only our population in the U.S., but also for overseas. And so the federal government audited the books as well. Nobody found anything wrong <laughs> until sort of by accident, George Hormel's son, Jay, found the embezzlement in the summer of 21. So my grandfather had developed great wealth during this time, as had Mr. Hormel. And they had grown the company to be, I think there were somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 employees. There's some controversy about that, but in that realm, which was a lot of people in southern Minnesota at that time. And when the embezzlement was discovered, of course, all the assets were frozen in the company. The stock price plummeted to practically zero. My grandfather's great wealth was in Hormel stock. And the company was really about to fail. The bankers to whom it owned money called a meeting in Chicago. And George and Jay Hormel both went to that meeting. And they convinced the bankers that if they didn't allow the company to hold on to their loans for another two years so that they could get their feet back under them, then the company would likely fail. The banks would probably have a run on them by customers who now had no jobs, couldn't pay their mortgages, needed to get their money, whatever cash out as fast as they could. So this is an early story of a company that was proved too big to fail. If it had failed, the belief was that all of Southern Minnesota would have gone into a deep depression before it did a number of years Just later. Just nothing Great of depression. meat manufacturing and feeding people and all of those other things that, that would have had consequences too. I mean, they probably thought of that some, <laughs> but I think it was, <laughs> they wanted to be paid. It strikes me as particularly timely, this story, in, in a couple of ways, Gretchen. One, because just recently, and, and I sit here in California, just yes. recently, of course, we had banks in Silicon Valley yes. that were heavily owned in the tech trade and all of that. And they, yes. there were runs on Absolutely. the bank because of things. And, the, and there were some, some shady dealings in all of that too. Yes. So even to now today, there's so much electronic tracing of everything. I'm sure that in that era, everything was handwritten into ledgers and those kinds of things. It'd be a different kind of an audit and a different, having a second set of books, literally books, Yes. <laughs> in those days would have likely been, it, this strikes me as very cinematic, by the way. I want to see this as a, yes. as a movie. I'm sure <laughs> I've you heard do that too. from a few filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a, a wonderful yeah. period piece. Yeah. Wonderful period. And, and a great place, part of the country, this beautiful agricultural land and uh, world war one and then post world war one. The interesting thing was about this embezzler was that he, although he did buy himself a nice house and a car, he he built an amusement park 30 miles south of Austin, Minnesota, in the middle of nowhere, northern Iowa. And 60,000 people would go there on the weekends for entertainment. All the big bands played there, Count Basie, Lawrence Welk, all these guys played there. It had a huge amusement park for the children. They had farm animals. So he became really famous there and beloved because of this great entertainment facility that he created after the World War, essentially 
kind of at post World War One, when people needed entertainment and fun. And when um, there wasn't much competition in that section of the country no, either. It's not like no. that was Los Angeles or New York this, or No. This was the largest amusement park west of Chicago at the time. Wow. And it's again just sort of amazing that he could get away with this. But he so so one of the things that I think this book speaks to that is also similar today is the way we can kind of systematically deny what's going on right in front of us. There were questions about how Ransom J. Thompson found his money, and he made up stories of his wealthy aunt who left him money, and he invested it well in the stock market and all of that. But really, it's hard to conceive of an entire small city and region knowing that he was the comptroller for the Hormel company and still could build this thing on the side, even if he was doing it with legitimate money, Betsy, you know, he had created a whole nother company on the side. Well, um, and that, that brings me to the second part of what I think is so dynamic about your story, Gretchen, and really your two books in a way, because what you're doing is something, again, it's so timely, this question. You're taking the stories that you were told and saying, now, wait a minute. <laughs> Something doesn't, let me see if that's true. Let me really examine this. Let me set aside the belief that I was told from the time I was little, you know, the family lore or the, the myth, if you will. And let me really be almost journalistic about it, like really yes. investigate. And I think that we're living in a time when whatever your news source whether it's family lore, whether it's politics or social science or whatever, whatever your news source, if you look exclusively at one source, it's just easy to buy the myth it's, it's in whatever direction right. that is. So, you know, yeah. I have well, my biases point. about which, which way it ought sure. to be thought of. But whatever, I, I really challenge myself to step outside of my news channels and to listen to alternatives so that I'm getting more perspective. And yes. whatever one's particular political biases might be or preferences or whatever, or even religion or family history or sure. personal values, it just makes so much sense to say, now, wait a minute, let's really look at this. Does this make sense? And does yeah. this wash, how is this hanging together as truth? And to sort of be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To, not to, it's it's beyond open minded. It's about well, I think it's a deeper understanding of truth, you know. And I think it's a more nuanced understanding, perhaps. Of certainly for me, I've come to a much more nuanced understanding of both George Hormel, who I have a lot of admiration for in many ways, and for my grandfather, who and no spoilers here, um, but. You know, this was a close-knit town. Everybody knew each other well. My grandfather had a small ranch on the side also. And so he and Thompson were trading awards for best Holstein cows or best pigs or whatever at the state fairs. You know, this is a group of men who worked very closely together, but they also knew each other outside of work also. And so... I think growing up, I always felt like there was this great distance between my grandfather and the embezzler. But in fact, in my trips to Austin, and particularly I was there two weeks ago for a launch event, and 
the proximity geographically is quite astounding. <laughs> they lived quite close to each other. And this is not a wildly populated area. So so when no, there was a gathering, correct. they were Yes, there. exactly. Yes. So everybody knew each other. So we, I won't ask for the endings of the story because we don't do spoilers here, but to say simply that, that you learned some more perspective about all of these characters. Yes. And like you, you used the word nuanced, that there weren't pure black hats and pure white hats. There were, there were is, shades of gray really hats. True. Yes, I think that's really true. And I mean, the other thing that I learned, and this does connect back to Poetic License also, is that when my grandfather was forced to resign from the company, because there were rumors that he was in cahoots with the embezzler, he lost his wealth. And sadly, at the same time, his beloved wife was dying of cancer in the same period. His father died. He was having a really hard, rough time. And although my father never described it this way to me when I was a kid, I think my grandfather felt some shame. And I think the trauma and shame was passed down to my father, who felt it quite intimately, the trauma and the shame, and then passed down a little more subtly to me. Hmm. And this is another thing that I think we can all think about in these days, because if we think about any kind of trauma that people have experienced, whether it's racism or shame because you're disabled or whatever it might be, and these things get passed down through generations, if they don't get brought up to the light of day, then we really can't process them fully and move on genuinely. Is that what keeps you going through this? Because <laughs> yes. look, exploring one's family history, it, it can be a recreational thing, but, but to do it to this degree is a lot of work and a lot of investment. Yes. To say nothing of the fact that, you know, you didn't uncover all easy, wonderful things about your family. It's not no, like you discovered, true. oh, gee, I came over on the Mayflower. You know, it's, right. it's not like that. It's like you, you discovered some hard truths. Yeah. And what, what kept you going in doing this? Some kind of obsession. <laughs> Isn't that what keeps most memoirs going? <laughs> well, healthy um, obsession, maybe curiosity. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of curiosity. I did, I was always taken by this story. There is crime, dr drama, family dynamics, powerful men, a fascinating time of our history. And this story has always captivated me. So I, this is really the book that I wanted to write. I had to write Poetic License first, but this is the book that I really wanted to write. And I think I'm done with family. Oh, good. <laughs> well, they can all rest at ease now. Yeah. It strikes me too, another of our guests, Sylvia Foti, you know, she discovered in her own family history, there was a myth of her grandfather being this fabulous person in World War II saving Jews yes. in Lithuania. And yes. she discovered it as a matter of fact, the yes, opposite, that indeed to that. He'd, yeah. he'd been a Nazi, and how that shakes one's identity. And it makes me think of folks in the American South, Caucasians in the American South, who yes. have family history, and they have the yes. Civil War heroes and the, the statues erected to them, and they've sort of Correct. elevated this story to mythic proportion, and that, right. that any contrary information, true though it may be, that takes that myth is disturbing and unsettling. 
And so I'm listening to you and to people like Sylvia who are willing to have this unveiled look at Mm -hmm. their own personal history, their cultural history. And I'm thinking that, you know, you're doing it in terms of the microcosm of your family. But if we look at our families, at our communities, at our eras and as mm-hmm. our country that again it doesn't it doesn't mean that everybody was evil it just means you know let's look at the whole truth 360 yeah, around absolutely. these individuals and realize you know the, the think- whole history I think that I would have a hard time knowing who I was without having done this. So what did you, you know, what, how did it change who you are or how well, you see yourself? It's changed me in believing that I actually came from an incredible set of grandparents. I really kind of fell in love with my grandparents in this process. And I wish that I had known them. I think they were both really remarkable people, flaws and all. I think I love them more because of their flaws. <laughs> They're very human. And interestingly, in Austin a couple of weeks ago, these people came up to me after the event saying, my grandparents knew your grandparents, and there isn't any way your grandfather ever could have had anything to do with this embezzlement. Um, and I, I will still believe that that is true. There there are things in the book you'll learn at the end that... that um, you know, gave me some pause and, and some... That made his head gray and not that, perfectly white. Yeah, made white. it grayer. But I think, you know, that I feel like now I sort of sit on solid ground, that I understand, that I know. It is my truth only. Some other one would find a different story. But I've been able to sort of figure out where the parameters are for reality. And I enjoy living in reality. <laughs> well, it's also nice to not have any dark secrets. That too. Behind you too. There's yes. something refreshing about saying, well, hey, there was some dirt in there, but I know what the dirt was. Yeah. And it no longer drives my decisions or makes me do things that I shouldn't do. Or, you know, I, I feel like I've accommodated all of that. Okay. by now. Well, one last thing, and that is that when we're willing to discover the flaws of the heroic characters, it also lets us discover the virtues in the flawed characters too. Yes. Great point. And I don't know, that just seems like a a more whole W H O L E whole way of looking at people. Yeah, it's exactly. I think that describes well how I feel about George Hormel, frankly, Hmm. you know, He had some flaws, but he was very inspiring in a lot of ways, too. And just as the CEOs that I worked with mostly were. Well, I think you win for longest title subtitle so far. (laughs) So I'm going to say the title of Gretchen Charrington's book, her first one, Poetic License, which is a beautiful book. This new one is out now, The Butcher, The Embezzler, and The Fall Guy, a family memoir of scandal and greed in the meat industry. Gretchen, thank you so much for coming again today and chatting with me. Write another book so we get to talk another time. Thank you. It's been a delight. As I listened to my guest today, Gretchen Charrington, and I remembered our first conversation about her first book, Poetic License, and now this one, 
the butcher, the embezzler, and the fall guy. It strikes me as a courageous journey she's been on to look at the real story behind the myth stories that she's been told about her family and to look behind the facade, to validate with research, to welcome input. You know, sometimes that's true in our families. We have to re-examine stories that we've been told and sometimes they've been just embroidered a little bit and that's no harm done. But sometimes there are family myths that are dangerous. And sometimes there are cultural myths or national myths that are dangerous because they skew our learning, because they don't let us understand ourselves fully. And I think it's a really courageous journey to be willing to examine history, to be willing to reevaluate with new eyes, new perspective, new understanding. And it doesn't mean that you're going to come up with the absolute, but you're going to come up with the best version, the closest to the truth that you can get. Why do this? Well, because to live in truth is an easier way to live, to know that there are not dark secrets, to know that you're coming at things with all of the learning that was available to you from generations past. You get to bring it to yourself and also so that it encourages us all not to pass the myth to the next generation or to the next listener, but to pass the information and the stories and the lore, but with accurate accounts, with open-minded perspective, and by being willing to take in opinions different from our own, to broaden our own understanding. That takes some determination, <laughs> and that is a pretty good extra bloom. I hope that wherever you are, whether you're studying your family history, your cultural history, and your community, whether you're looking at our political climate, our history, our national lore, that we look at it with open eyes, that we realize that we can find virtue in the villains and some flaws in the virtuous characters, too. That's a really nice fertile ground on which to bloom. <laughs> <laughs>